the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Slop the Presses. They've turned porcine and are rampaging through the streets of Lurido. Buttes and loot and zoot space suits. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Hey, we have a conversation with J.P. Sullivan this time. John is the winner of the 2017 Bain Fantasy Adventure Award, which we give out each year at Gen Con in Indianapolis. We gave that out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, actually, it was last week. Uh, our editor, Jim Menz, was there, and he, uh, he handed it out. John's story is called The Blue Widow, and it will be up on the Bain website in September. It's a great story of monster hunting in a sort of muskets and magic steampunk world that John worked out very nicely, and the heroine is fairly badass, too. We'll talk about that with J.P. Sullivan. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of the Leaden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. There are new e-arcs at the Bain eBooks website. E-arcs are those planetary electromagnetic jazz hands that the Earth makes towards the universe at large to protect us all from cosmic indie bands and hip-hop artists who really need to concentrate less on the bling and more on the sing. No, 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 that's, that's not right. Tony, what's an e-arc? Well, let me tell you, an e-arc is an electronic advanced reading copy. These are the, uh, the books that we're going to put out in uh, two or three months. Uh, usually it's uh, about a three-month lead. So you get them early, and you get them with all the typos uh, in there, so you get plenty of spice as well that you wouldn't get in the normal print book. So it's really a, a great value. Anyway, if you want to get a book early, especially in your favorite series or something that you just can't wait to get uh, and read, we put these up on the Bayonie Books site, and you can download them there and read them before they're actually even books. What we have out now is Down and Out in Purgatory by Tim Powers, the collected stories of Tim Powers. I'm really excited about this book and the fact that we're bringing out a new Tim Powers novel, an all-new Tim Powers novel next summer. But uh, this is going to be all of the short stories that Tim ever wrote collected in one spot. And uh, I just I consider this guy a modern master of, uh, of science fiction and fantasy. You'll find 20 pulse-pounding, mind-bending tales of science fiction here. Twisted, metaphysics, supernatural wonder. Um, Tim has won two World Fantasy Awards, two Philip K. Dick Awards. Um, he's the author of The Anubis Gates and uh, On Stranger Tides, which the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie was based on that one. The fourth one. The fourth one. A complete palette of short story telling colors from Powers, including um, The Bible Repair Man, which is maybe my favorite Powers short story, um, where the psychic psychic handyman supernaturally eliminates troublesome passages of the Bible for paying clients with um He sort of wipes them out, and so they don't apply to the clients anymore, but it doesn't really work like that in the end. Um, and uh, it's, just a, it's just a great, weird, surrealistic, cool story that Tim... Uh, both makes into a magic realism sort of tale, but then makes into a really compelling, like, straight-up uh, adventure story as well. That's the thing that he's really good at, is that every one of his stories has a has a really strong beginning, middle, and end, and, and it's a lot of fun just to read as a story. And plus, it's got all this, this weird-ass stuff in it as well. Just lots of great stuff. Tim Powers is one of the great writers of our time argues none other than me in the introduction to this thing. So get that e-arc. Um, also out in e-arc form is a new standalone Dave Drake novel. This one looks great. Dave characterized it as something like uh, Young King Author in the Far Future. This one is called The Spark. Tell us a little bit more about it, Christopher. Yeah, sure. In the time of the ancients, the universe was united. That was so far in the past uh, that not even memory remains, only the broken artifacts. Now a leader has arisen. In his capital of Dun'ad, the leader provides law and justice. 
in the universe beyond his champions advance and enforce the return of civilization. Pal, a youth from the sticks, has come to Dunad to become a champion. Pal has no idea what he's really getting into in Dunad. On the other hand, the leader and Dunad have no real idea of what might be inside this hayseed with high hopes, for he has the spark of the makers within. The Spark E-Arc by David Drake and Down and Out in Purgatory, the collected stories of Tim Powers are now available at BaneEbooks.com. Get them while they're hot off the old e-presses. want to welcome J.P. Sullivan to the podcast. Hello, John. It's great to be here. J.P. Sullivan, uh, John Sullivan's writing name, is the winner of the 2017 Bane Fantasy Adventure Short Story Award given out at Fabulous Gen Con. Um, we've had some fantastic stories over the past few years, but I have to say this is probably uh, my favorite, one of my favorites, if not my favorite so far, that uh, we've seen in the contest. The story is called The Blue Widow, and it will appear at the Bane.com website on September 15th. It'll be available thereafter online, which I know a lot of uh, our listeners will be uh, listening to this after the fact, and will also become part of the Bain Free Library free ebook download, free short stories 2017, that's called. And uh, you can get it at Bain ebooks in perpetuity as well. So I should probably say a few words about the Bain Fantasy Adventure Award. Here's how we put it to prospective writers in our uh, when we open up the contest every year. We're looking for blood-pounding, heart-stopping action with heroes you want to root for and villains you love to hate. Whether your heroes win the day with swords or sorcery, fireballs or flamethrowers, or even their wits alone, all are welcome. Modern, medieval, and otherworldly settings are all acceptable as long as you can tell a rip-roaring good tale with a fantastical element. Which John's story, The Blue Widow, certainly accomplished in spades. In fact, I think you got all of those elements in somewhere or another in storage. Uh, no, no flamethrowers. No flamethrowers. Well, there's uh, you had a technological component as well. To uh, it was it was kind of a. Well, we'll talk about the world a little bit in a moment. But uh, tell us a bit about your background. I think you've you've had stories out there, um, including uh, in Galaxy's Edge and elsewhere. Yeah, I was in the July issue over at Galaxy's Edge, which I think might still be up on their website. Uh, and this month, I'm also featured as the cover story in Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic Medicine Show with a sort of a dark fantasy thriller um, that I'm pretty happy to have out there. It's got a great illustration by uh, Dean Spencer, who I think actually did some work for you guys at Bain in the past, back when you still had Bain's Universe. Um, and I wrote both of those stories at the Clarion Writers Workshop. Uh, which I attended last year. And The Blue Widow was actually the first story I wrote after the workshop ended. So I think attending uh, definitely helped me get my work oh, to cool. a higher level of quality. Uh, and as for me, more generally, I used to work in television at a pretty low level, admittedly, not like uh, an agent or a movie star or anything, uh, just uh, kind of an office uh, guy over on a few different TV shows. I uh, didn't like that very much, and I'm in a master's degree program these days uh, looking to change careers. Ah, well, maybe it'll be writing. Uh, the uh, I, hey, I'm a Clarion West graduate from uh, from long, long ago. By the way, who was your uh, what, the, what was your lineup at Clarion? Uh, we had a great lineup. Uh, we had uh, Ellen Datlow. Um, or sorry, Ellen Datlow uh, did a guest lecture. Ellen Kushner uh, of Swords Point fame. Um, was one of our instructors along with Delia Sherman. Uh, we had uh, Ted Chang, um, Victor Lavelle, and uh, Kelly Link, um, as well as the inimitable uh, Andy Duncan. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. There's something about those workshops, that intensity of, of doing six weeks. Um, and it is still six weeks, right? Yeah, it's still six weeks. You have to crank out a story uh, every week, and in addition to critiquing a story from 15 other students every week. So it really, yeah. uh, there's something about ratcheting up the speed that makes you um, kind of learn the nuts and bolts of story construction, I think, uh, in a way that you don't. Because, well, you know, the natural instinct of a lot of writers, myself included, is to sort of take weeks, months, if not years, to polish everything, try and get the prose perfect, 
Um, I, I heard that when Harlan Ellison taught Clarion, he uh, made everybody in his week write a story every day to just try and get people to focus on structure more. Yeah. Well, there was um, my Clarion West. We had uh, let's see, we had Scott Card, um, Karen Fowler, Lucia Shepard, who became a, a mentor and friend to me, and uh, Roger Zelazny, and um, it was just uh, an amazing experience for me. Who else? Was, oh, Connie Willis was there also, and uh, it was uh, it it really like compressed maybe three two or three years of of development into that one. Uh, six week period, which was great, especially when you're a 25 year old, which is when I did it. So, um, well, let's talk more about uh, the Blue Widow, which has a. Uh, you wrote it right after Clarion, so you were in a strange state of mind, no doubt. <laughs> it has a very evocative and strange setting. Um, I love the idea of the buttes above the mist in your your country of Malovia. Um, tell us a bit how the story developed and. Um, the idea where the idea came from and such um the story is kind of like a product of several different ideas coming together after percolating for a long period of time uh as far as the the buttes uh goes like i kind of had this notion in the back of my head for a while about a country where nobody could leave home for most of the year uh kind of a really claustrophobic country where everybody's penned in by uh storms but I didn't like the idea of everybody living underground and floating islands felt a little too high fantasy for the tone that I was going for. So I kind of came up with this concept of an archipelago of mesas and buttes uh, where everybody lives in tiny self-sufficient communities, but they can't actually travel uh, between them except for a couple months of the year uh, when the storm breaks. Uh, but for the longest time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with that setting. Uh, and a friend of mine told me that I ought to try writing a story about a monster hunter, which got me thinking about what kind of monsters they'd be hunting and what kind of technology they'd have to do it. And I sort of laid the various pieces together. Um, I, you mentioned the technology. I kind of went for an early industrial revolution, like a 19th century uh, feel in one of those uh, worlds that you know has swords and sorcery in it, but it's kind of entering a more modern era, just barely. Yeah, there's a train, but... Um, there there's no guns, right? I don't think. Um, there's. Well, she doesn't use one. She doesn't use one. Guns don't really figure into the story. If I were to write more stories in the setting, there might be like flintlock guns, but it's kind mm -hmm. of an asymmetrical uh, technological development where they got trains, but they don't have you know rifles and six shooters going around. Yeah, and you have. Um... Your main character Teresa or Teresa is uh, is a member is a member of this monster hunting order, um, and she carries a, a magic sword, a special sword. Tell us about her a little bit and um, and what she's when we meet her. She's quite badass, but she's she's got a a bit of a past that is slowly revealed in the story. Uh, so in the world where the story takes place, um, there's a problem with monsters hiding among the human population, kind of in human form, and very few people can manage to defeat these monsters, you know, even when they're revealed in a straight fight. Uh, but the church is pretty powerful in this setting and holds a bunch of ancient relics and magic weapons that grant people the strength to kill monsters. But the weapons are really temperamental and sort of have a mind of their own. They won't uh, agree to be wielded by just anyone. So Teresa uh, had just left her home as a widow after the death of her husband, and she decides that the best future for her is to join the church as a nun, but that doesn't pan out because one of the magic weapons decides that she would be a perfect candidate to wield it. Uh, so from this kind of accidental beginning, she becomes an experienced monster hunting professional. And uh, by the time the story starts, uh, she's very experienced, uh, veteran, kind of approaches her job with like an irreverent uh, results over rules approach that gets her in trouble with the order. Uh, and the job she gets in the story um, is kind of almost a punishment uh, for being too much of a maverick. And the job ends up being a lot more personal than she expects and ties into her backstory, which I won't give too much away. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it. But but the the main th punishment she's getting here from her superior is that she's been avoiding going back home, 
for years now. She doesn't want to go back to her hometown. And this place, Malovia, is her home, right? So she gets to... Yeah, she's kind of like... She kind of fancies herself now the, the uh, city sophisticate, and she's kind of from the sticks. And when, in your world, the sticks are also an incredibly spooky, claustrophobic, weird place uh, where everybody dislikes you for reasons uh, not immediately apparent. Um, there's, you know, she's reluctant to go back, but she's forced to confront uh, her history in the story. Well, aside from the butte sticking out above deadly mist, um, it sounds like a lot of hometowns to me, actually. <laughs> so, but you write uh, the story is told in this really cool acerbic style that I that really flows. Um, it's dialogue driven, um, is and you have a real dry wit. Um, with it um and you i don't know if you have any influences there or if it's just the way that uh, that you wanted to tell the story but um were you planning on it being humorous or did it just sort of develop that way because it's it's not i mean it's obviously not a humorous story it's it's deadly serious but there's there's a lot of uh, dry wit in there um, I'm definitely conscious of trying to use uh, dry humor and uh, what you call the acerbic wit, uh, even in a more serious story. Uh, first, because it's my preference in humor style, but also, I think, because people kind of use humor in grim situations to diffuse tension. I mean, you, we hear sometimes about, you know, the gallows humor of people like EMTs and how that's a coping strategy for them. And I also think humor is useful in more serious fiction because it provides a variety of tone. I think sometimes in the, like, post-Sopranos, post-Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones media environment, we have a lot of uh, fiction and work that focuses a little too much on dark and edgy and forgets that, you know, you can use humor and like dashes of levity to provide a contrast that lets you appreciate how serious the circumstances are more. And I think, uh, I don't know about, um, I guess for one influence uh, in fantasy fiction, I think K.J. Parker or Tom Holt, uh, if you prefer to use his recently revealed real name, uh, does that really well in his short fiction. There's a lot of grim stuff going on in the K.J. Parker universe, but there's all, all these little jokes that kind of uh, jump out and provide these moments of relief um, that I think do good things for pacing. There's a lot of imagination in the story as well. Um, can you explain these damn butterflies that are, are like the souls of people that we see? That's a kind of a monster that shows up. Uh, yeah. Um, that one's a little weirder than some of the other stuff in the story. Not explained uh, super in-depth. I kind of left the mechanics of that vague on purpose. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has talked a few times at length, I think, pretty well about the difference between, you know, using rules-based magic where we understand everything very well, and then the more sense of wonder kind of magic, you know, like Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, where we don't really know what he can do or how he can do it. Um, and I, I kind of like to include uh, elements of both, you know, have that element of the weird and unknowable in a story. I think uh, Patricia McKillop does that pretty well in some of her stories. Um, it, it, it kind of ties into the sort of spell that the monster in the story has put on the town where she's kind of manipulating everybody's dreams and souls at some kind of unknowable, spooky level. Yeah. Well, explain to us um, some of the the first monster that um, that Teresa encounters is called a, is it a Sturga or Stiga? Um I think it's Striga, but I'm not Striga. 100% of the pronunciation. Where'd that come from, and what 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 can that thing do, and how how could she, how can you fight it? Well, it depends on uh, you know what folktale you're in. It's definitely not something I made up. Uh, Strigoi um, or Strigas are creatures from like Slavic folklore. Uh, in Eastern Europe, and I think Slavic folklore has a lot of really interesting, unusual monsters, and I wanted to use unusual monsters because I think we see vampires and werewolves and those kinds of creatures a lot, and I think sometimes they lose their sense of dread because, you know, they're they're familiar. We know how to kill a werewolf. You need silver. We know how to kill a vampire. You need sunlight or you need a stake. And the unfamiliar is spookier because we don't really know the rules straight away. Uh, like 
in horror movies, I always found the scariest part to be near the beginning when we don't really know uh, what kind of haunting or monster we're dealing with yet. Uh, so I chose um, like the folklore of Eastern Europe, which feels familiar on the one hand uh, because it's part of Europe and European. the European tradition is close to us in America as well, but it's also kind of exotic because we don't encounter Eastern Europe uh, folklore and myth very much in media. Um, and there's a, there's a villa in the story as well, which is another um, Eastern European uh, kind of fae creature. I kind of put my own spin on that one a little bit, but I'm not the first person to use one. I think one shows up in Harry Potter somewhere, if I'm remembering correctly. The fun thing about the... Uh... As an example of your uh, of your humor in the story as well is that um, when she uh, uh, confronts the uh, the her first monster, which is a vignette at the beginning of the story, um, it, he's a tailor um, by day and a monster by night, and she's um, she's actually ha- con- and a monster has to make a living, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and she's um, she's paid him to to make a dress for her, right? That's how she's gotten right. gotten in. So there's some things that uh, that Teresa is um, able to do that perhaps not every uh, monster hunter can in uh, in this world. The evocative style and uh, the evocative imagery and the uh, Serbic style just really um, were the things that that set it above the other entries in the in this year's contest. I thought if you if you like a good action scene, if you like uh, kind of a spooky monster story coupled with adventure and investigation and uh, some good emotional resonance uh, with the main character and her family in this town. Uh, I think that it kind of draws from a few different currents of fantasy. And So um, tell us about winning the contest and going to Gen Con. Were you there? Uh, yeah, I did go to Gen Con, um, courtesy of Fan Books, so thank you for that. Uh, it was really great, uh, a little exhausting, but great. It was the 50th year anniversary for Gen Con, uh, after being founded by basically Gary Gygax in his garage before he'd even invented Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and this was the first year they've ever sold out. Um, so it's just this enormous mass of people everywhere at Gen Con. I think 65,000 tickets got sold, and there's maybe 800,000 people in Indianapolis, so that's a pretty big swarm of people coming in. Um, it kind of felt like, you know, nerd mecca or something, just tons of people coming into town for this big event. Uh, all the big board game and role-playing game manufacturers are there, uh, card games, all kinds of demos, tournaments, and con- convention-exclusive stuff. It's a little bit like Comic-Con, but instead of Hollywood, it's kind of this uh, games and literature continuum instead. Uh, Gen Con has this whole separate track of programming uh, featuring panels by professional writers uh, like every hour of every day, like four or five going on at once. So there's a ton of stuff to choose from there if you're interested in you know, sci-fi fantasy fiction. And well, really big names uh, showed up this year. And we had Charlene Harris, uh, Brandon Sanderson, Patrick Raffis, Margaret Weiss, and Tracy Hickman, and a lot more. Um, for an aspiring writer, if you're going, thinking of going to Gen Con, I definitely recommend checking out the symposium uh, panels. It's a great way to get advice from professionals. There's definitely a focus in a lot of the panels on providing you know, practical notes for new and upcoming writers. And it was at one of those panels uh, where I was honored to receive the uh, Bain Fantasy Adventure Award, uh, the Bain Traveling Roadshow. Uh, your fellow editor, Jim Minns, was there to MC and uh, Larry Correa was there to give out the award, and, and Eric Flinch and a few other authors showed up as well to talk about their upcoming releases over the next couple of years, and you know, the audience got free books, uh, free giveaways. It was, uh, it was a really great time, and I was really happy I was able to go. Yeah, that's cool. The uh, So, yeah, oh yeah, Larry was there, the, uh, not your fellow Monster Hunter uh, subject matter writer. <laughs> So. Yeah, I'd actually never read a Larry Korea story uh, until I learned that he was going to be giving out the award. And I thought, well, I got to uh, I got to get familiar with him before I show up. And I picked up uh, Son of the Black Sword, which is his you know uh, fantasy adventure action uh, epic kind of set in an alternative India. 
and you know he too has the uh, magic sword, which uh, decides whether or not it will agree to be used by the wielder, and is the only thing that can easily slay monsters in his world. So I thought, okay, Larry and I are kind of on the uh, same wavelength here a little bit. Yeah, well, it's a good good wavelength to be on, um, especially among Bane readers. <laughs> Killing monsters, we like that. So, oh yeah. Uh, uh, well, excellent. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Any books in the works? Um, I do have two books uh, that I'm working on, which uh, one's kind of like a lighthearted middle grade fantasy novel, uh, and the other is a more serious adult fantasy. I can't say for certain uh, when they'll be done, but I hope soon. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to find my work, uh, I'd recommend uh, not only reading the uh, Bane uh, award winner uh, when it comes out on the 15th of September, but also check out the August issue of Orson Scott Card's IGMS, uh, where I appear as well. Sure. Uh, you don't have a website. Quite. I didn't find one when I was trying to... Oh, not yet. Not yet. I, yeah. Maybe I need to get around to doing that. Uh, right. I'm still new to this game, so the website is something I should start yeah. thinking about. I don't know. I think it's a waste of time myself, but... Lots of writers have them. So it depends on on the, what kind of uh, how outgoing you are and, and such, and how you, it's somewhat useful. The thing anyway. that I'm very the one thing I'm reluctant to do is to get onto Twitter. I was always uh, a heel dragger on social media. Uh, the but you know these days it's a good way for a lot of authors to connect with their fans. But I do think there is a risk sometimes. You see a few people get more interested in getting into the discussions online than they are. Yeah, you got to be real careful as a writer not to create a medium that takes you away from your main work. Uh, some writers are really good at, at balancing both. Like Larry, uh, Larry Korea is excellent at it, but. Um, it's uh it's mine it's, is a YA author and they um they they made a rule uh that they were only going to check social media for you know x hours every day otherwise they could just get swept up in it yeah it'll eat your life and uh produce very little and it will produce nothing that anyone will pay for <laughs> so so it, just think promote as much as possible but really you know just do the writing just a, a little advice. Uh, but the story is The Blue Widow by J.P. Sullivan. It will be on the Bane.com website for free uh, on se in September, and it'll be available in perpetuity at Bane eBooks, where it will become part of the Free Stories 2017 collection. And it'll, it'll stay up at its link as well uh, online. So you can find it all over the place. And look for uh, J.P. Sullivan's name uh, elsewhere in other magazines because we really feel like he's, he's an up-and-coming talent, and uh, we're very happy to have him as the 2017 Bain Fantasy Adventure Award winner. So, John, thank you very much for being with us. Well, thank you. My pleasure to be here, and thank you for those kind words. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals.
Patty's knees were shaking and her hair was damp with sweat. But she had managed the deal and gotten what she wanted at a price that was very nearly what she had intended to pay. Gustav Rel Anna had produced a sample of what was in his storerooms, along with certifications from the growers and harvesters. She had scanned them with the reader provided by the port and found them authentic, which was to say the port transmitted to her the Laster Cooperative's confirmation that the information she had been given was true and correct. The samples tasted good to her. The nut meat was firm and a little sweet, very pleasant in the mouth. But she was certainly not an expert on freshness. The certifications from the grower's co-op included a list of nutrients and a graph showing the rate at which each degraded in stasis and on the shelf. Gustav Rel Anna wanted more per unit than Patty's limit, but again, her research stood her well. She didn't quite have to walk away from the counter before her view prevailed, though it had been a near thing. And in the end, he had gotten a little of his own back. Because of the method by which the nuts were packed and sold, she was required to overbuy, for he would not break a sealed unit. She signed the sales chit, gave him the code for the tug which would be bringing the passage's pod into orbit, and the deal was done. It has been a pleasure, Trader Josgallen the vendor told her, shouting again. Come to me whenever you have need of my laster. I will be very glad to do business with you again. That made her a little uneasy. But the papers had been signed, the delivery scheduled, and the money, she was certain, already transferred out of the port account with her name on it. Master trader Jos Gallen would surely critique her performance on the shuttle lift to the passage, and she would learn then if she had been foolish beyond measure. She exchanged bows with the vendor and found her way out of the booth, Mr. Higgs falling in beside her, father, still rather indistinct, beside him. Gods, she wanted a cup of tea and a quiet place to sit and gather her composure. That was not her usual reaction to a completed trade. Most usually, she felt exhilarated and curious to see what else the market might offer. Today, she only wanted to leave. However, she was not alone. Indeed, she was in the company of a master trader who had not necessarily shared all of his requirements with her. Is there business yet to do, she asked. There was a slight pause, as if Mr. Higgs waited for the master trader to speak. When there was no contribution from that quarter, he said that he had no other business and that they were coming up on time for the shuttle anyway. Patty nodded and led the way toward the slideway, her stride somewhat less energetic than it had been on the way in. She wondered if Gustav Rel Anna had a nurly gig or another, less legal mood regulator concealed inside his booth. The slideway platform was just ahead. She forced herself to walk more quickly. Sean felt something settle in the depths of his pocket and sighed. It was nice while it lasted, he thought, watching Paddy ahead of them. The child looked exhausted, which was likely those short sleep shifts catching up with her at the far end of an unexpectedly vigorous session of trade. He had been wary of broaching the topic of sleep shifts, as a mere father, his concern would surely be set aside for her own necessities, and he was loath to bring the master trader into the matter. Well, they would have a conference on the lift to the passage. He would mention it then in the context of the effectiveness of the trader on the floor. That might set her to thinking. 
He put his hand into his pocket and pulled out the red counter. It was glowing somewhat, and he felt as plain as a kiss on his cheek. Priscilla's love, warm and steady. Closing his fingers around the token, he smiled to himself. At least now he knew where it had gone. Best if it had returned to Weapons Hall and the improbable addition of himself he had met there, Loot the Magician. Failing that, it was good that it took itself off to Priscilla, who had the skill to deal with it, rather than landing in the pocket of some random trader or dealer in antiquities. Ahead, Paddy was angling toward the ramp that led to the slideway platform. Several people were clustered near a booth there, and one of those turned his head, spotted Paddy, and detached himself, his course set to intercept. Sean took a deep breath, thrusting the counter back into his pocket, and deliberately thought himself very visible indeed. Patty saw him out of the corner of her eye, a male in local clothing, perhaps a little older than she was. His height and his features combined to convince her that he was Leighton. He was coming toward her deliberately as if he knew her. She had never seen him before. She was certain of it. Leighton's were no longer safe and the agents of the Department of the Interior were demonstrably stupid enough to walk up to them openly and demand that she and Father and Mr. Higgs come with them. If he didn't try anything stupider. Still, she thought, recalling to mind her lessons in Debriot and Armsmaster Schneider's advice, still, it might be something else. He might be on another trajectory altogether and not on course for them. She altered her course somewhat. The boy altered his course, still aiming to cut her off. Paddy took a breath, taking in the surroundings with a quick glance. Open enough, some people, but not a crowd, and he seemed to be by himself. She stopped, centered, and faced him. He smiled, wide and delighted, not Leighton, and came forward more rapidly. She flexed her knees, though he wouldn't be much to throw, she was briefly grateful that she had given father her bowl. Well, what's this, an acquaintance late met? Father's voice was loud in her ear, and there he was, completely solid and abruptly between her and the approaching target, her bowl in its sack over his shoulder. Paddy, do you know this young person? The boy stopped, confusion on his face. Perhaps, Paddy thought, he was wondering where father had come from. No, sir, she said in answer to his question. We have not met. Ah, but perhaps it was myself you wished to speak with, father asked. The boy shook his head. Your pardon, sir, it was the lady. I thought I did know her, uh, the resemblance, but I see that I'm wrong. Pardon, sirs, lady. He bowed, a shapeless thing, neither Leaden nor Terran, and without waiting for an acknowledgement, turned back the way he had come. Paddy let out a long, shaking breath. Well now, father said, looking down at her from his height. His voice was mocking, but his eyes were not. Wasn't that easier than killing the poor lad? She hadn't been going to kill him, Paddy thought, unless he had proven a threat, of course. I didn't know him, she said, her voice sounding angry in her own ears. If he was a threat, I wanted to be prepared. Exactly correct, father said. And now that he has been properly chastised, I suggest we board the slideway and go home. Chapter 8 Chessel's World. 
Patty settled into a hard plastic chair in the cellars section of the Chesilport Grand Auction Hall. There was no real reason for her to be in the hall. All of the important transactions, saving the sale, of course, had been handled at the auctioneer's docket in the antechamber. There, she had registered her cargo, provided a unit sample, her receipt, and the certifications and verifications from Andiri Port and the Laster Cooperative. The cargo had previously been moved to the bidding bin assigned to the passage, along with the goods master trader Jos Gallen had on offer. Tame stuff there, the number three mix, none of the goods he had taken on at Andiri, nothing at all interesting, really. Number three mix was the blandest of the six standard trade mixes the master trader had to hand. In Patty's opinion. Of course, she thought, looking up at the upcoming auctions board, he probably wanted to learn something from his offering. How many bid and at what price? Who had bid? If they accepted or rejected the trade catalog offered free to all who asked, how many actually made contact with him after accepting the catalog? And if they had anything potentially interesting or only useful to offer the habitants of an upcoming port. He, of course, wasn't here to watch the auction. Master traders had far more lucrative matters to tend. The auction was an introduction, that was all. A way, one way, to get his name out on the port and into the mouths of the street vendors. He himself had been invited to a reception at the portmaster's office later in the local day, and was currently contacting prominent names on port to arrange for meetings before and after. Patty sighed where she sat, her eyes on the board. One vendor had bid on her offering at the usual market rate. She twisted her fingers together and reminded herself that this was only one bid, and likely an automatic as it had come so quickly. The bidder hadn't had a chance to read the documentation, really, and to understand why what she had on offer had value. She sighed. The reception Ordinarily, she would have been at the reception, too, as the master trader's prentice, but the invitation had specified master trader Jos Gallen and no guests. It seemed an odd thing, and she had said so. Father had merely said that he had seen Otter and told her that she would, therefore, need to see to the auction of her cargo without his help. Which was a joke, naturally enough, and the reason why Paddy came to be able to indulge herself at the public auction, with only third mate and pilot Dilnem Tiazen and Comtech Sally Triloff at her side. The third mate was kin, of course. Corval and Arab allowed such relationships, so often had the lines been crossed, though very much her elder. He had, in fact, come out of retirement to oblige the captain when she sought to fill those posts left vacant by the events on Liad. Despite his age, his hair was quite red. He was stern and had little to say for himself. He had voiced no objection to Paddy's scheme of sitting for a while to watch the bidding. Merely, he had settled into a chair near, though not next to her, pulled a reader out of his pocket, and was immediately immersed in a book or a report or... Sally was another matter. Paddy felt that Sally would rather have liked to walk about the port, instead of sitting in an auditorium watching the apprentice trader stare at the bid boards and bite her fingernails. She really ought to suggest that they wander to Sally's whim. After all, the auctioneer had her comm code and would transmit the details when, if, the lot sold.
The auctioneer also had her account information on file. Her portion of the sale, less the auctioneer's percentage and such taxes as the port levied, would be automatically forwarded to it. There really was no reason to sit here and monitor the board herself, as if her attention might influence the outcome. She leaned toward Sally, her eyes still on the board, and abruptly straightened, breath caught. Another bid had come in, appreciably higher than the first, a bid more in line with the worth of the product described in the documentation she had provided the auctioneer. Patty forced herself to breathe, swallowed, and a third bid came in, this one even more substantial than the second. Patty's chest hurt. She was, it was going according to plan. Her Mylaster would be known as a superior product, and she would be paid. Her research had suggested that she would net between 2 and 3% more than the degraded Mylaster that came to Chessel's world via the loop ships. The profit was good, of course, but the real prize would be if she could parlay today's sale into a standing order. If she could turn that trump, why, she would have had a hand in shaping the route itself and would win for Chessel's world the honor of a scheduled stop. She stared up at the board, her hands clenched on her lap, blinking as a fourth bid came in, slightly higher than the bid before, which might mean that momentum was slowing, but it couldn't have topped out already. Patty, a light hand, pressed her sleeve. You okay? Patty felt a jolt of guilt. Sally. She had been going to offer Sally the lead, which was only balanced and fair. She turned and smiled deliberately into the tech's dark eyes. It is my first large offer at auction, she said, and saw a tiny expression of disappointment cross the woman's face. But, Paddy continued, I can follow the bidding on my calm. She pulled the unit from her belt. I will make certain of my channel, and then let us go out onto the port. If you will lead us. Sally smiled widely, pleased. Good. I'd really like that, she said, and her smile faded slightly. She turned to look at Dil Nem. Sir, do you wish to lead on port? It was a courtesy for his rank, Paddy knew, and it spoke well of Sally that she offered it when she plainly wished the position herself. The third mate looked up from his reader and lifted a shoulder. I have no need to lead, he said, in strongly accented but perfectly intelligible Terran. Please, find for us the hidden delights of the port. Sally took that as a challenge. Paddy saw it in the flash of her eyes. I'll be happy to do so, sir, she said, and looked to Paddy. Have you found your channel? I have, she said. I may be heard to ping every now and then as new bids come in. Fair warning, Sally said. She stood, a grin on her face, and nodded toward the closest exit. There's our way out. Chesselport was open to the weather, which was agreeable. Her research had revealed that Chessel's world at this latitude and longitude enjoyed clement weather, with no great variation in temperatures and no extended rainy season. Other geographies on world did labor under these inconveniences, but they did not intrude upon the port. Following Sally down broad streets lined with shops, Patty was reminded of the days when she had accompanied father up and down Solcintra Port as he pursued his duties there. The calm on her belt pinged as they walked, but she resisted the temptation to look at the screen every time. 
Every other time, that was well enough. It was a good compromise between a trader's care for the trade and a proper enthusiasm for a crewmate's skills. For Sally was a skilled leader. Unlike some other crewmates, whom Patty charitably did not name even to herself, Sally had a sure instinct for interesting streets and a good eye for a shop likely to hold unusual wares. Patty was particularly impressed by a shop hosting a live demonstration of what she gathered was a traditional dyeing technique. It would seem that Dilnem and Sally were similarly struck, for neither protested Patty's suggestion that they stay to watch a second demonstration. The dyer noticed their interest and rewarded it by draping a finished scarf in graduating shades of green around Dilnem's neck with a smile. It becomes e, he said. Wear it in health. For a moment, it seemed to Patty as if Dilnem might refuse the gift. Then he bowed smoothly. I thank you, he said. And Patty, just behind him, added, Have you a card? If anyone asks my kinsman where he came by such a handsome scarf, we want to give good directions. The man grinned. He produced a card from the pocket of his apron with a flourish and handed it to Paddy. There's a smart kitlet, he said. For that, your own scarf, and your friend too. He was as good as his word. Sally's scarf was a deep crimson with pale pink borders, and Paddy's sported a swirling pattern of misty violet and deep purple. After leaving the dye shop, Patty's calm pinged three times on a rising tone. She snatched it off her belt and thumbed on the screen. She stopped, staring. Bad news? Sally asked from beside her. No, she said slowly. I don't think so. My lot sold at three and a half percent over average. A good price but I am wanted by the auctioneer to sign an affidavit. The traders of Chesilport were a standoffish lot, Sean thought, leaning back in his chair with a frown. Working with the port directory and trade bios, he had created a list of traders to contact from most desirable to least and had spent the last hour and a half calling them in order. He had not expected to complete the list before it was time to depart for the portmaster's reception, but he had expected that he would have at least six appointments to keep afterward. As it happened, he was disappointed in both of his expectations, for he had called every name on the list and still lacked three quarters of an hour to his departure time. And he had not one appointment to show for his labors. True, he had only managed to speak to a handful of traders personally, but every one of them had been busy or had nothing to offer at this time. To the latter, he had said that it was an introductory visit only, whereupon they too were busy. It was unprecedented. Staring up at the ceiling, arms folded behind his head, Sean tried to recall if he had ever in his life found a port where no one cared to speak to him. Even on Dayen, so long as he remained in the port proper and in the company of a woman, he found traders willing to talk with him. Not necessarily to trade with him, he having made the genetic error of being male, but to show wares, in case he happened to know of a ship properly captained by a woman, where the trader was also a woman of a clan whose delm was a woman. Really, it was quite lowering. He was beginning to enter into Theo's feelings of rejection. Perhaps he had erred in the matter of the auction. 
He had wished to feel out the market, as, one had assumed, the market had wished to feel out a new trader come to port. Lot number three, commonplace as it was, generally produced good results in that regard. The simplicity of the offerings very often served to soothe those who might be wary of that new trader on port, thinking that he might be too dear, or one of those fellows who dandled in exotic wares and would scarcely admit that there might ever be the possibility of a market for hairbrushes. He sighed at the ceiling and closed his eyes. Had he come up against local custom? Was he, in fact, precipitate? Ought he to have waited until the portmaster's reception? The Chesilport World Book had not mentioned an introduction protocol, but the books were sometimes blind in interesting ways. If it was so ingrained that one must be introduced to a stranger by a person of suitable status before one might interact with said stranger, it might very well go without saying, for what civilized person would behave differently? He snorted lightly. Assume that you've sinned against custom, Sean, he said aloud. Go to the portmaster's gather, become introduced, and hope that the traders you contacted out of order are of a uniformly forgiving. A gong sounded loudly. Sean spun the chair, his hand flashing out to the keyboard, alert, incoming, that ugly noise meant. Something bad had happened. No, I will not sign that. Patty looked directly into the auctioneer's eyes. I did not enter stolen goods into the auction, and I do not agree to forfeit my profit. I showed you the receipts and the certifications. You accepted them and placed them in the bid packet with the rest of the information. She paused and deliberately lifted an eyebrow. Did you not? That was, perhaps, a bit too much, from apprentice trader to an auctioneer, but she was angry, and she was certainly not going to sign this, this affidavit admitting a crime she did not commit. Nor was she going to allow them to keep the proceeds of her sale, the considerable proceeds of her sale. The receipts and certifications are legitimate, the auctioneer said. I regret that we accepted them before we were informed that the lot is part of an ongoing criminal enterprise. I advise you that signing the affidavit and forfeiting the funds is your best option. I will do no such thing. I am connected with a registered and well-respected trade ship, the dutiful passage herself. Show me this ongoing criminal enterprise. The burden of proof is not on me, the auctioneer said. Relinquish my profits, Paddy said, proud of how stern and steady her voice was. I will not sign the affidavit. You may take it away. Trader, I cannot. The law is clear. Profits from a criminal enterprise are forfeit to the port. Those who do not sign the affidavit reveal themselves as criminals, in fact, and are taken up by security. She felt a presence by her left shoulder, heard low-voiced Leaden in her ear. Traitor, perhaps it is best to sign. No, she said sharply to Dilnem and the auctioneer alike. I shall not sign. What I will do, however, is file a report with TerraTrade. This is theft. Very good, trader, Dilnem said in loud Terran. Let us return to the ship. He took her arm. She thought about resisting him, but what more could she do here? The auctioneer was adamant. 
There seemed little hope of recovering what was hers, short of holding him at gunpoint, and perhaps not even then. The pressure on her arm increased. She relaxed deliberately and allowed Dilnem to turn. A simple pivot, very smoothly done, and the three of them exited the hall. No one stepped forward to prevent it. The shuttle, Dilnem said, once they were outside. Quickly. Comtech, please call ahead. Inform the pilot that we will require immediate entry. Yes, third mate, Sally said. And in a moment, Paddy heard her on the comm, crisply relaying the third mate's orders. Paddy's knees were shaking, and she could scarcely think for the anger burning in her breast. Her plan had merit. She had sold her cargo at a fine profit, which the auctioneer refused to pay out. And it wasn't fair. It was theft, and she would not... Best to bring it before the master trader, Dilnem murmured, and more loudly, Comtech, please ask the pilot to contact Captain Mendoza and master trader Yosgallen. Say that the trader has lost her profit to port legalities. Say, ongoing criminal enterprise. Yes, third mate, Sally said again, and once more there was the sound of quiet consultation behind Paddy's back. You may, Paddy said, release me, third mate. He cast a measuring look at her. She met his eyes firmly, and after a moment, he released her arm. At the same time, however, he increased his pace, not running, never running. A person running on port only inspired others to run after her. He was, however, walking very briskly, and therefore several steps ahead of their small group when they came round the corner and onto the street that led to the shipyard. Halt! Three large persons dressed in the livery of Chesselport security stood before them, two with weapons leveled. Dilnem halted and threw out an arm to stop Paddy. She, in turn, looked over her shoulder for Sally, who was looking over her shoulder at three more uniformed persons behind them, each also holding a weapon. Master Trader, a message from Comtech Sally Triloff, on port with third mate Tiazen and Trader Yos Gallen, forwarded by the shuttle pilot on World. A chilly breeze blew across the back of Sean's neck. He took a deep, quiet breath. Please proceed, Comtech. Yes, sir. Message follows. Trader Yosgallen has lost her profit to port legalities. The auctioneer wanted her to sign an affidavit, which she refused to do. Reason given for confiscation, involvement in an ongoing criminal enterprise. Roner Jerathine, that was the tech's name. An unflappable individual in Sean's experience, this moment sounding just a bit breathless. Continues, the tech said. The three have been placed under arrest by armed Chesselport security and are being escorted to the magistrate's office where they will be incarcerated, fined, or both. The pilot heard, through the open comm, a man's voice state in trade that those found to be complicit in crimes against a planet have in the past been executed. There was a small pause, as if Comtech Jerathine was swallowing his horror as Sean was swallowing his then. At this juncture, the pilot says the comm was taken away from Tech Triloff. He heard her protesting and demanding that it be returned. There was a very loud noise, and the unit went dead. But this was ridiculous, Sean thought. Crimes against a planet meant piracy and aggression. And while some worlds did indeed hang convicted pirates, the charge itself was ludicrous. Dutiful Passage was an honorable and well-known trade ship. She... He closed his eyes. Dutiful Passage had stood above Liad, 
Weapons live, backing an action that had seen Terran mercenaries on the ground at the spaceport, that left a gaping hole in its largest city, an action that had killed people, innocent people, who had simply been going about their lives. Crimes against a planet, indeed. Same message relayed to Captain Mendoza, sir, Tech Jarathine said. She's talking to Chesilport Magistrate Office now. Thank you, Rona, he said, as calmly as if Paddy was on board and at Debriot, beyond all possible threats against her life. Please ask the captain to call me when she's done with the magistrate. Will do. Sean thought he heard a note of sympathy in the man's voice. Anything else for me, sir? Not at the moment. I thank you. Right then. A deep breath. Jarathine out. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the remains of the day mixed up in a shimmering vat of unicorn sweat and fairy dust bunnies and blasted into a red sky at morning, sailor take warning, to celebrate the Bane Fantasy Adventure Award winner, The Blue Widow, by J.P. Sullivan. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 